Hey, good evening. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And our main text tonight will be Ephesians, chapter 5, uh, verse 13 and 14. <clears throat> but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So for the, the context of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, uh, the writer, is writing to the church in Ephesus. Um, and the first three chapters of Ephesians are, are very theological. He talks a lot about uh, uh, New Testament doctrine. And then the last three are very practical. So how do they live um, as Christians in this society that they lived in? And uh, to understand where their hearts were at, where their minds were at when they heard this, we got to understand Ephesus was very wicked and perverse and an idolatrous city. So Ephesus, it was, you know, for all intents and purposes, call it one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was ground zero for all, uh, anything related to finance in Asia. It was ground zero for the worship of Artemis or uh, Diana, if you're a Roman. But it was ground zero for that worship. And there was a temple the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was, it was unlike any other. So you might have heard of the Parthenon um, that, that has the square footage that's roughly equivalent to that of a football field um, with 34 foot high columns. The temple of Artemis was uh, even bigger. They estimate around 127 columns, 60 foot tall each. Uh, it burned down and then they rebuilt it back up um, and is kind of considered one of the first buildings to be made or constructed out of marble. Uh, so this was the temple of Artemis, and at the temple of Artemis, there in Ephesus, um, they worshipped, and that worship of Artemis involved hundreds, if not thousands, of eunuchs, uh, virgin priestesses, temple prostitutes, and it was, it was unbelievably um, erotic and perverse. But the temple was also the main bank of the ancient world, like I talked about. It was the center of economic power. It was the center of business. But it was the center of cult worship. And so the gospel slams into Ephesus 12, anywhere from 12 to 15 years prior to uh, this text that we just read was written. And so why is this important? Well, the gospel hits an extremely wicked and extremely perverse group of people. And it, the gospel struck this city so hard that riots break out. And like I said, it was a wicked, perverse city. And when the gospel shows up, it spread really, really fast. And as it spread, Christians started to separate themselves from the economic activities uh, that were necessary there in Ephesus. So they stopped going to the temple. Um, they stopped going to the, and worshiping Artemis, uh, which really frustrated the people because that hits their bottom line. Not only were they worshiping there at Artemis, but they were selling all things associated with that worship. So they felt it in their bottom line. And they pulled away so much um, that those, you know, the idol makers and all those people that were so, that their livelihood was centered around this uh, erotic, perverse worship, it was costing them money. Now, I love this. I think about it in today's terms. I think about the gospel slamming into a city so hard that it, quite literally changes the economic culture. I think about a city like, you know, for example, Las Vegas. The gospel slamming into a city so hard in Vegas 
uh, that there's no more money made from prostitution or gambling or drugs. There was, so there was the proof of the gospel in Ephesus and by the way that those who lived by the gospel um, spent their money, spent their time. So this is how the church begins. But now here we are 12 to 15 years later um, in the text that we're going to focus on tonight. And Paul is concerned, it seems like, um, because the church seems in Ephesus seems to be stagnant. The church had found itself surrounded by a culture uh, that was in direct contrast to everything that Jesus had asked of them. So somewhere in there, and he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, but Paul echoes that sentiment by saying, awake and arise. Every time that word um, arise is used, so that, like I mentioned, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 60. Every time that word for arise is used, there's always some action associated with it. So in, in Joshua chapter 7, um, after they get smacked around by Ai, um, God comes to Joshua and says, arise, and, he's, and then, obviously, this is paraphrasing, but we're going to find out where the transgressors are in your camp. And we know that story. He says, uses that same word when uh, he sends his word to Jonah. And he says, arise, go to Nineveh, and obviously we know that story. So arise, is all, it's not a passive um, usage, usually. There's always some action required of uh, the recipient of that word. And I think about that when I think about um, growing up, mom and dad woke me up in very, very different ways. So mom, it was a, maybe a night light or a lamp or the, the hallway light, and it was very gentle. And it was, hey, Brendan, you know, rub my back. It's time to get up, bud. I'm going to give you like 10, 15 more minutes. And, you know, it was very gentle, very nice. Dad, on the other hand, on a good day, it would be lights and a semi-loud voice. And on a bad day, it would be lights a very loud voice and a shake. Get up, we got stuff to do, it's 6 a.m., This is we're way past the time that you should be sleeping. So I think about those two things, and this arise, awake and arise that Paul uses is a lot more like dad than it is mom. It's not a gentle, hey, church in Ephesus, um, let's you know, kind of wake up and see what's going on around us. It's more of a dad, get up, the house is on fire, we got stuff to do. So there's some things that kind of stand out to me about this passage when we think about um, who uh, is reading this is Christians. It's believers. It's written to the church in Ephesus. It's not written to unbelievers. And I, I mention that because sometimes we read that and we're like, oh, he must be talking to lost people. Awake and arise and, you know, accept the gospel. He's talking to people um, in the church. So, and, we, you know, we think about the followers of Christ. We think about ourselves and we think about the examples in the Old Testament. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. The God's people are constantly um, falling asleep, constantly forgetting, like we talked about this morning, constantly being lulled to sleep, constantly moving from God, moving away from God, rather than closer to Him. So how does this happen? This is what I kind of want to talk about tonight. How do Christians get lulled to sleep? I'm going to suggest three things tonight. One is going to be the anesthesia of deceit. The second is rootlessness. And then the third, just the good old-fashioned chokeout. So the first, the anesthesia of deceit. So what we as Christians believe with the creation of the world, we've been studying Genesis on Sunday mornings, which has been awesome. And what we believe um, comes from the Bible. 
So out of the overflow of love from the triune God, he speaks um, and power spills out onto a canvas that was blank. Everything that exists was created by him. And that love, that powerful, so rich, so infinite, when God speaks, the universe comes into existence. It not only obeys that, it continues to expand in every direction. And everything we see, everything that we know, comes from an overflow of God's power and his love. It's not like, you know, ancient mythologies. Um, it's not out of violence or some divine war or some really, really silly, ridiculous ones that um, used, they used to believe, or is, you know, the goddess who let out a little gas, and that gas became the universe. It's nothing silly like that. It's not like more modern explanations about how somehow some tiny, and of course I'm oversimplifying it because I think it's silly and I don't understand it, but some tiny molecule explodes and now we get the world. That's not what we believe. We believe in a powerful, loving God. Everything that's formed is from him with purpose. So we know where we come from, and this is one of our you know, big philosophical, religious uh, issues that we wrestle with, that people wrestle with in our day. But we get it from Genesis chapter 2, and I'll invite you to turn there this morning, or this evening, I guess, this morning, already passed. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat from it you will surely die. So here man is in the garden, innocent, naked, unashamed, innocence that has less to do with nudity and everything to do with the state of their souls. Nothing to hide, no shame. And he puts them in this epic garden, and he says, All of it is yours, to work it, to keep it, you can eat from any tree that you want, except this one. Except this one tree, because if you do, you'll surely die. That is broad and generous. That is from a loving God. So if we know where we come from, what happened to us? You know, I don't know if you're philosophical or not. I don't think anybody's looking around at the world today and say, hey, human beings, we are really killing this thing. So what happened? We go to Genesis chapter 3. So remember, as we read this, this invitation from God uh, in the garden, this gift of God is broad and generous. Now look how the serpent manipulates it in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So did you see it right there? Did you see the ploy? Did you see that anesthesia of deceit? Notice the serpent doesn't jump right in and say, Hey, are you hungry? I've got something really good for you to eat. Eat it. It's not direct. It's not, hey, I've got this one you want to bite. It's deceptive, and it's a lie, and it's deceit. So let me go back and highlight for you. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, broad, generous. Then the serpent says, Now did God really say that you shall not eat from from any tree of the garden? So we go from God's offer of broad and generous to the serpent's 
craftiness of narrow and his accusation of God being narrow and restrictive. He doesn't come right at her with the fruit. He comes at her with an accusation about the character of God. He's saying, God, hey, God's not good. He doesn't know what's best for you. You know what's best for you. And in that moment, she sees the fruit is good uh, to the eye and eats it. But it comes with an accusation of God. So one of the ways that we get put to sleep is we inhale this deceptive anesthesia to the point where it's deadly. So life is hard. And when we aren't careful, we start to listen to that whisper. I think sometimes we, we hear that whisper that says, hey, turn your back on God. He doesn't know what's best for you. God's narrow. God's restrictive. He's just trying to keep you from doing the things that you really want to do. God's holding out on you. What you desire is good. You know what's best for you. And so if we steep in that long enough and you know, we see or we know people that find reasons and excuses to distance themselves from God and to distance themselves from his people, we see people that start to blame God for not giving them the things that, quite frankly, he never has promised us. And it hap- so it happens subtly, usually over a long period of time, death by a thousand cuts, if you will. It's not a fast move. Satan's pretty, pretty clever, pretty crafty. He, doesn't ha- he knows he doesn't need to move quickly on us. Just slowly start to put this anesthesia of doubt into our minds. So if he can take, sneak up on us and take our eyes off of Jesus, we start to get sleepy. I think Satan would love nothing more than for us to just to start counting backwards. If you've ever had surgery, you kind of understand what I mean. They say, hey, start counting backwards from 100. And I, in my experience, I don't remember making it past like 98. I think Satan would love that. For us to just start inhale this anesthesia of doubt. 100, 99, 98. And we're lulled to sleep. We're questioning God's character. We're questioning his goodness and his grace. And out, we're asleep. So this isn't the only way I I will suggest tonight that Christians fall asleep or are lulled to sleep. The second is rootlessness. In Matthew chapter 13, a pretty familiar passage, Jesus says in verse 20, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. If you've ever noticed, I think culture has an obsession uh, with love, but specifically love in two ways, young love and old love. We, We love when we see a couple that's been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, walking down the street holding hands. We love that. We say, oh, that's just so cute. We're, we're obsessed with this old love. But we're also really we're kind of fascinated by young love. It's, it's, ugh, it's gross and it's cooties, but it's, oh, they're so in love. We see newly married couples and we just say, man, they're so in love. They're so happy to be together. And so we're kind of obsessed with this young love and this old love. But what we don't, especially with our culture and our world today, we don't really get obsessed with what happens in the middle. Because a lot of times what happens is that we have young love and then over time it dies on the rocks of this in the middle and it never reaches this old love. And so we're obsessed with this young love and this old love and we try to live off of emotions. 
And we do the same thing with our Christian walk sometimes. If, if we look through the Bible, we can, we can see this. You can actually see the church in Ephesus uh, through the, the birth of it in Acts chapter 18 and then to the death of the church, if you will, in Revelation chapter 2. And we miss, whether it be with love or in our Christian walk, we miss thinking about how powerful endurance is. We miss building our life around the truth of Jesus. So when bad things happen, we, we think God owes us something that he's not giving us, and we get angry. We try to live off of emotions, whip up our emotions, if you will, to continue our walk. Find you know, just the right song to listen to, or, or just the right passage, or uh, we just, we're really trying to focus on a sermon so that we can whip our emotions up. But Jesus reminds us that the house that stands in the storm is the one that's built on the rock, not on the one on shifting sands. And our emotions are, are like shifting sands, at least mine are. Um, from any given moment, we have a very wide range of emotions. But to be rooted in God at the day of trial or tribulation is not to hold God in contempt um, or to think that he um, is, is not giving us something that he, we think he owes us, but to lean into his goodness and in his provision that we have prepared for with our endurance in our faith. God doesn't promise us no pain. He promise us, promises us that he'll be with us in it. Psalms chapter 34, verse 17 says, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. C.S. Lewis has a quote that says, Relying on God must begin again every day as though nothing had been done before. We sing a song off of, based off a of passage that says, Mercies are new every morning. It's a long journey back home, back to our eternal home. And I think this type of endurance, if we aren't careful and if we aren't intentional, is replaced by good feeling, emotions, based on this, if you will, Ephesians type of faith that we see in Ephesians chapter 5. So rootlessness, I think, is another way that us as Christians are lulled to sleep. And then third and finally, just the good old-fashioned chokehold. If you're still in Matthew chapter 13, uh, we'll continue in verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So in, con- in contrast to the first two, uh, the anesthesia of doubt and rootlessness, here there's something that's physically putting you out to sleep. And so Jesus says in this, in this verse, there's two things that choke us out. The first one is the cares of the world or the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So the worries of the world, cares of the world, is uncertainty, anxiety, and if we haven't learned this one by now, then I don't, I don't know that we will. The only thing that's certain is uncertainty. If you had big plans in, in 2020, you probably have learned that lesson. We've all learned that lesson. Our plans are, are fragile. They're small. Jesus is saying uncertainty and anxiety that is, that is dwelled on. You know, anxiety happens. Worry happens. But this anxiety that is paralyzing, that's crippling, is the kind that, if we're not careful, can choke us out that can lull us to sleep in our faith. 
It's not that we don't have uncertainty. It's inevitable. We're going to. It's out of our control. Now, you might argue with me that we don't live in Ephesus and we don't have to deal with this gross sexual perversion um, of the temple worship that we talked about when we go to Walmart. And I would argue, yeah, maybe we don't have to live in Ephesus, but sometimes I think it's, you know, we have Ephesus right in our pocket. I'm not anti-technology per se, but I don't want us to get trapped in the mindset uh, that we are immune of this, that we don't have to deal with this, because I think we do more than we realize. Jesus is saying if we, if we give in to this rampant uncertainty of our day, this anxiety, and we dwell on it, that is when our faith is, runs the risk of being choked out. So we talk about the worry of the world. Jesus also talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Nowhere you'll see in the Bible does uh, the Bible condemn money itself, riches itself. Obviously, we know um, how it discusses money and the love of it. But I think this love of riches, this reliance on riches, works in two opposite ways. So in, in the middle of the Bible, there's three wisdom literature books. Um, some people call it Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. I think it's really cool how the bookends of, that, of, of those three are, are opposites, right? So Job loses everything, and in that he realizes that God is enough. And then on the flip side, you have Solomon who gained everything, and he realized it's all vanity and worthless. So the two ways I think this, the deceitfulness of riches uh, runs the risk of choking out our faith is one, if, the thought, if I just had more, then I could serve the kingdom better. If I just had more, what I have right now just isn't enough. I need more. But I think it also goes the other direction. We place a confidence in our blessings, a confidence in our wealth uh, that makes our hearts not hungry for the things of God. We have this false sense of control that comes from my own ability to gain resources, time, money, whatever that may be. And we get this false sense of control and we aren't seeking God's providence. So the anesthesia of doubt, rootlessness, and the good old-fashioned chokeout, I think, are three ways that we can be lulled to sleep. And I'll close tonight uh, with nine questions. So stay with me. Tim Keller, um, in, a, in a sermon, talks, proposes nine questions. He calls them nine questions for sleepy Christians. And so I'll, I'll give those to you this evening kind of as a, a spiritual or a, a litmus test, MRI, if you will. Say, hey, am I asleep? Have I been lulled to sleep by one or all three of those things? First question, how real has God been this week to your heart? Number two, how clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? Number three, are you having any particular seasons of sweet delight in God? Number four, do you really sense his presence in your life? And I would add, are you even looking for his presence in your life? Number five, have you been finding scripture to be alive and active? Number six, are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? And if you're doing this litmus test at home, if yes, which ones? Number seven, are you finding God challenging you and calling you to something through the word? Number eight, 
are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? And then finally, number nine, are you conscious of a growing sense of evil in your heart? And in response, you have, do you have a growing dependence and grasping of the preciousness of the mercy of God? So there's your litmus test, your, hey, am I asleep test, pulse check, gut check. And as I close, as we talked about before, we are saved from something to something. Um, I'll close with just a couple other verses in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jumping to verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul's wish for the church in Ephesus was to return to this vibrant, active, growing community of believers that they originally started as. The the community that changed the economic culture in Ephesus. He urged them to be imitators of God not stagnant or complacent and content in what they'd already accomplished or done, but grow in goodness, grow in righteousness, and grow in the truth, those of which that are defined by God, not the truth of the culture, not the truth of the age, but the truth that is defined by the Lord. And so as Paul has that wish for the church in Ephesus, I think he would probably have that wish for us today in 2023 in Wichita, Kansas. We are to be awake and alive. Like I said, that word always comes with action. Are we active in our faith or have we been lulled to sleep by the anesthesia of doubt? Or by, hey, maybe our faith wasn't quite as rooted as we thought it was when trials come. Or are we just, is Satan just hitting us with the good old-fashioned chokehold? Whatever that may be, if, if you're asleep tonight... Um, Or if you need to respond to the gospel, if you have any other need, please come, always stand and sing.